what is it about art or visual art or just art in general that, that you think unlocks something? It know? hits you here somewhere between your brain and your genitals. You know, it, good art, you know, hits you in the stomach just the way good music does. And for me, people say, well, you're pretty eclectic, you know, because people can't figure me out because on the one hand, I've shown Philip Taff. On the other hand, I've shown Michelle Grabner. And on the other hand, I've shown Keith Haring and David Vonerovich. What do these things have in common? Or Sieben Versteeg or, you know, any number of video artists and conceptual artists. What's in common is is just somewhere there's a resonance. I don't think like, well, does this conform to the guidelines that I've established for curating? No. I I know it like I knew the Beatles were geniuses when I heard I want to hold your hand. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, Ava Linaway. For today's 101st episode, I'm pleased to have on Barry Blenderman, who is a gallery curator, writer, and musician. He talks about his experience as a 19-year-old traveling Europe, seeing art, pop art, and impressionism and all sorts of things, his experience studying art and being immersed in it, getting his degrees in art history, putting on shows like The Anxious Figure, curating Keith Herring at Semaphore Gallery, Martin Wong, and countless others. We also talk about what it's been like living in Normal, Illinois and being the gallery director at Illinois State University's, where he's put on tons of exhibitions. Jason Lazarus, we talk about in the interview, as well as Tony Tassett and Michelle Grabner. You'll have to check out Illinois State University Galleries, and Barry would be mad if he didn't have me remind you that there are catalogs available for most, if not all of them, so please check them out. I think this interview is fantastic in that you really get a sense of time and experience through Barry's lens, so please stay tuned for that. Many of you listeners might be new to Studio Break, so we just want to remind you that we are our blog and podcast site. If you go to studiobreak.com, you'll see a ton of different posts, mostly by artists. And again, each of those posts include images of the artist's work, links to their website, these lengthy interviews that explore their practice and experience. And you can also easily subscribe in the iTunes store, so just subscribe to the Studio Break podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at Studio Break. And you can also like our Facebook page where you can find out about great things like our annual competition coming up in May. This year we're excited to have Richard Holland from Bad at Sports curating nine artists into the Studio Break library. And we're also going to be giving away some solo shows. Again, the details of that will be fleshed out soon. So like our Facebook page so you can stay up to date with those details. All right, here is our interview with Barry. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. I'm in your office, Barry. Hello. How are you doing, Barry? I'm great. It's uh, you know, it's just another chilly winter day here in central Illinois. Well, again, thanks for taking the time. If anything, I'm hoping that we can gleam a lot more about you. So, so where are you from? I was born in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, under an auspicious star. <laughs> it's a humble peasant stock. It's in, uh, it's in eastern Pennsylvania. It's an hour from Philly. Uh, there was a two-hour train ride to New York when I was a kid. Did you did you visit New York all the time, or I mean, my mother, who sang, and my parents were were. I mean, my mother didn't finish high school, 
She was a Russian immigrant. My dad went to pharmacy school, but was a Sunday painter, which is very important. So my mom was, was a really great singer, unschooled. My dad was a good painter, totally unschooled. And, for example, when the, when the Guggenheim Museum opened in New York, when I was probably seven or eight, I was there. And my mom took me, and I have, I have distinct memories of looking over the railings and thinking, I don't remember what was there or what the art was, but I was at the Guggenheim at a very tender age. But mostly why we went to New York was because my Aunt Molly, my mother's sister, also came over on the boat with my mom in 1924. Uh, she lived in Brooklyn on King's Highway. So we had a good pad, you know, to crash. And uh, my mom liked to get really cheap theater tickets. So we would go see Milk and Honey, Come Blow Your Horn, all kinds of uh, plays. At the same time, my parents, you know, made me go to art museums. There was an Allentown Art Museum right, right outside my town. You know, culture wasn't an option. I took lessons in sculpture, in pastels, in drawing, you know, Saturday lessons at what was called the Balm School in Allentown. So I was a class artist, basically. Uh, that probably surprises you. Uh, my father, when I was four years old, started painting a lot on Sundays. He was just a classic Sunday painter. I think he's really good, too. Naive. And so what he did was he bought he bought books on Gauguin and Van Gogh and Picasso and people like that, Cezanne. Mm -hmm. Those were the four. Ruo, too. Those were about the five artists that he really liked. He also liked Juan Miro for some reason, too. So he would then set the books out and he'd copy the paintings, most of which were reproduced in black and white. So he'd kind of like make up his colors. Mm -hmm. And I have all these. You know, I have a, a painting that's based on Van Gogh. I have... Uh, a blue period Picasso. I have Cezanne's uh, Hangman's House. Uh, then he did some just based on photographs of local things like our local crick, you know, Monocacy Park. But so I was down there and I saw these books and I was, okay, man, my dad's doing this. So I remember distinctly copying the card players, one of the versions <laughs> of the card players by Cezanne because, hey, it was pretty interesting. These guys smoking pipes and playing cards. So I was I had an exposure to Cezanne. I had no my father didn't even know how to pronounce their names. He would have probably called them Cezan, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, he called Monet Monet, you know. And <laughs> I, I like doing that as a as a uh, you know little joke. Picasso was Picasso, and, <laughs> and but so here I was. I was copying Cezanne's and Van Gogh's when I was you know just a kid. So it's in my blood, you know. What was it like when you went to go see them? Especially like, because, I mean, you're talking about artists that, like, the idea of looking at something in black and white, trying to transcribe it, like, based off of something that you know. What was it like when you went to see these? Well, there was a hiatus. Life? I mean, I, for me, I mean, being an artist in those days was just making art. It wasn't about, you know, going to museums and, and uh, unless you were, you know, one of these gifted people or an elite where you your parents would just line you up and you know take you to a museum i'd say there was a, a gap from the time i was about eight to the time i was around 19 where viewing art was not important to me one of the reasons was because i also had a very strong interest and a lot of talent in music 
So for me, I was always trying to decide what should I do. My parents pushed me towards art, but I was more interested in music, particularly I grew up in the 60s. So when I heard the Beatles in 1963 on TV, I flipped out and I just wanted a guitar. So I was trying to balance my desire to be a musician with my desire to be an artist. And it's funny, in the long run, I'm not sure what won. I guess <laughs> art did. So all through my early teens and later teens, I was more interested in in music. My parents would still take me to New York, and I would uh, see some stuff. My early impressions of art were from the, from, the, from the ages of maybe four to seven. When I graduated high school, I was convinced I was going to be an engineer because that was another hobby of mine, which was making electronics devices. So I started an engineering program at Syracuse University. And after a semester, was thinking that this was 1970. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was, you know, late hippiedom, war, anti-war protesting, May Day, Washington, D.C., tear gas. I was in that whole thing. I went to Woodstock, you know, in 69. So I decided that, you know what, I don't want to be an engineer. That's kind of square. So I dropped out of college, hitchhiked, got cheap, junky factory jobs, went to Europe, paid my way to Europe. In Europe, in Stockholm, in Paris, in Amsterdam, well, guess what I saw? You know, I saw the Van Gogh, you know, the great Van Goghs. I saw in Stockholm, I saw a whole bunch of pop art in uh, which just grabbed the hell out of me because the, you know, the Europeans were smart. They picked up, they just grabbed pop art while it was being made when the Americans were looking at it like it was some kind of graffiti. I saw Rembrandt's and Vermeer's and I got the bug. I, I was filled with, with just this delight uh, and, of course, like many, I tended towards Impressionism because it's very easy to understand for a young person. Mm -hmm. So this was when I was 19. How long were you over there? Oh, only for six weeks. And I did basically Europe 101. Back then, you took Icelandic airlines. It made a stop in Reykjavik. And then you just took the, the closest train. I bought a Eurail pass, two-month Eurail pass, which basically allowed me to go anywhere I wanted. So we'd say, okay, we're in... Copenhagen now, where should we go? Let's go to Stockholm. I don't know. I think I'd rather go to Hamburg to see where the Beatles started out. And so just whatever train came first. And it was amazing. I mean, it was there that I, I just, you know, I saw Notre Dame. I saw, you know, it was incredible. That kind of gave me a continuity with, with these little art books that I was copying from when I was a kid. And I just saw the the beauty and the consciousness altering aspect of of art. Uh, I'm not afraid to say on the record that uh, during that trip there were also conscious <laughs> expanding right, right. Uh, substances in, in, in Amsterdam <laughs> being taken. So, I mean, I was, you know, stoned on hash looking at pop art and Van Gogh, and I'm going to tell you something. I stared at those paintings for hours, and I understood them. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't have without this, but it was a, a combination of a perfect trifecta of a young, inquiring mind, an artistic background, and hash <laughs> that really cemented this deal for me.
it might be just because I'm a, a suburban kid at heart, but like it just strikes me as like a, a being crazy in a way. Not crazy, but I mean, were, were your parents just like, just do whatever? I mean, it- I was on my own. I mean, I was out of school at that point. I, I dropped out of, of the engineering program right, right. in Syracuse. And my parents had just kind of like, oh, well, this guy. Sure. He, was, he, he could have been a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. They'd written me off already. They would talk about me in the past tense. <laughs> so, like, he was so great. And, I, of course, I ended up getting right back, which is the next part of the story, and then uh, getting back into their good graces. I returned to college. I got a master's degree and all that. But at that period, I mean, I was supporting myself. I worked in Boston for a year. I was doing folk singing gigs, but I was also working as a dishwasher, a short order cook, uh, a DJ at a club. All kinds of things. I got a lot of experience, and I, I really liked to hitchhike, and it was relatively safe in those days. So if I felt like going to Nashville, I'd hitchhike to Nashville and go look at Hank Williams' guitar. If right, I right. felt like going to Europe, I saved up. My whole European trip cost $400 and for six weeks. Now, of course, that was in 1971, and $400 then is worth probably about uh, 3,200 now. Right. But even so, I mean, for six weeks in Europe, try, try doing that for 32. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, well, it's just, it's just, uh, it's interesting because it, it, again, just really kind of keeps bringing up this idea of experience, you know, in terms of activating something. My parents never had, I, I'd only been in one airplane and it was a, you know, two propeller plane when I was a kid. My parents, you know, were, were just, were people that were very desirous of, of having culture a part of their lives. But, like I said, my mother was uneducated formally. My dad going to pharmacy school to become a pharmacist. You know, you go for three years. You don't study English literature, right? So I was set up in a way, but I had no privilege. I had no money. Mm-hmm. But I never shied away from experience. I I mean, it was a rock and roll in me. I always took risks to go where I wanted to go. I was never worried, like, what if I run out of money? Or, right. Or what if I get hurt? Or... I just wanted to go as part of the times, too, where, I mean, the 60s and, you know, we talk about the 60s. The 60s ended in around 1972. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I was lucky to have my experience shaped by Kennedy, the Beatles, Dylan, Bobby Kennedy, you know, the tragedies of the tragic deaths, the tragedy of Vietnam, but the the sheer inspiration of the moon landing and Woodstock. And it was a, it was a a great decade. It was kind of horrific, but it, it was inspiring beyond belief. I mean, there were people you could believe in and I always had heroes and among them, Lincoln, Edison, Einstein, people like that. So when you, when you got back, then you immediately got your engineering degree yeah, Where right. I said to my parents, okay, well, maybe I'll go back to school now, but I don't want to go back to Syracuse, and I'd like to go to Boston University because I'd been hanging out in Boston, like I say, trying to get my folk singing career together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played, I busked on Harvard Square, you know, and I, I got to play the clubs. I never made it or anything. So we'll take a little break there and play a bit of Fly Bird written in 1969 by Barry and recorded in 2014.
So we'll jump right back into the interview as Barry is talking about his slow immersion into art. The deal was that I had to work 25 hours while I was in school. So I continued short ordering and, 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 you know, doing lighting in clubs and whatever I could do. It was pretty handy. I worked in drug stores because my, I'd worked at my dad's store for, from the time I was 10. He had his own drug store, Blinderman's Drugs, which actually is formative too, because I mean, I'm running a small business now, if you want to really think of it that way. So I uh, went to BU and I started taking my intro courses, you know, from caves to the Renaissance, Renaissance to uh, the present, which at that time they never got past, you know, 1940. Then I started taking Renaissance Baroque. I was an art history major and I was lucky to have incredible teachers. One was Sam Edgerton, who um, is, a, is a very renowned person in Renaissance. And uh, he inspired me a lot. So I took lots and lots of courses. And these are courses, the content of which I remember clearly. Mm-hmm. I, can, I, can sit, I can close my eyes and I can be back in those classrooms where I learned that it's not Giotto, it's Giotto. And I could hear the stories about Botticelli, you know, drawing people as they're being hanged. And, you know, all the anecdotes that these teachers, just learning about Franz Halls and learning about Vermeer and, and learning about Bernini and Caravaggio for the first time, I was floored. At the time, Boston had great bookstores, and I would just buy hundreds of books on whatever for 49 cents and just read books on art. So at that point, I knew that I wanted to be an art history major, which I was, and I was doing very well. I finished college in two years. I just went summers, and my parents weren't going to take the chance that I was going to you know, get distracted again and go off to Africa or something. <laughs> so I found myself at, in 1974, I graduated with a whole year off. I graduated only a half year after I would have if I would have stayed at Syracuse. <laughs> And my professors all said, yeah, well, you know, you got to get your master's in art history. So one one option was staying in Boston. Did you have a clear path of what you were going to do with this? My parents, you know, my father was saying, like, what do you, what do you, <laughs> art history? I mean, I can understand why you'd want to be an artist, but that's something like for rich girls. That's what he said. <laughs> and, you know, for the most part, it was probably true. You know, a lot of the people that, that were studying art history did come from very affluent families. And a lot of the people I went to school with at Boston University, Syracuse, later I went to University of Pennsylvania, were very affluent. So I was always the odd guy out. I was, I was you know, middle, middle, middle class. So you wound up then going to, to get your master's? I got my master's and I, I entered a PhD program at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, my specialty would be Renaissance and contemporary. So I left Boston, moved to Philly. I could have applied for schools for the next fall. But again, my parents said, you know what, go mid-year. Again, the six-month gap, they thought, again, I would probably, you know, want to go back and sing or something. And, you know, I couldn't pay for my tuition, although I have to tell you that University of Pennsylvania is an Ivy League school, and the cost for a year of graduate studies was $4,000. Now it's sixty. It's a wonderful time to be living. It was a really good time, and I could pay my rent and my expenses, which, again, was part of the bargain. So here I am. I'm in West Philly. I'm going to Penn, and I'm taking contemporary courses in 20th century. They didn't have contemporary. 
that wasn't part of art history. Warhol, I wanted to work on Warhol. They said he's still alive. <laughs> and I didn't like the pedantry of art history. I didn't like all the memorization. And I wasn't really that well suited to it because I was much more an idea person, mm-hmm. an inspiration-oriented person than knowing what I call the school of art history known as I would name uh, Raphael's telephone number. Like, so what was Raphael's telephone number? I didn't give a shit. I just wanted to look (laughs) at the work and form my own more poetic associations between what Raphael was doing and what Warhol might be doing. That's what interested me, finding connections, being a synthesis, not an analyst, but a synthesis, not getting weighed down with details. The most crucial moment of my graduate experience, which went from uh, the winter of 75 through 78 when I got my degree and decided not to continue with a PhD because I wanted to move to New York, was taking one class on Michelangelo with Leo Steinberg, who even back then I knew was a genius. I mean, he, he was well regarded. He wasn't as famous as he is now, uh, alive and then in death. But I was just enamored of the guy. I wanted to be related to him. He was a dapper, uh, Jewish, bearded, very cultured. He had been born in Russia, educated at the Courtauld Institute, and I believe in London, and just was mesmerized by him. He would get down on his knees and imitate postures, and he had whole files full of elbows and hand positions and these absurd ideas that, you know, that Christ in certain paintings is you know, his prominence is given to his phallus because the artists were trying to make a big deal out of the fact that he was God incarnate. And so there there are even pictures where Mary's hands are are awfully close to his generative organ. And so I started writing, like, under the influence of Leo Steinberg, and I did these crazy papers that then he read one, and he said, your style is intoxicant. This is what, and I said, wow. <laughs> so, like, I'm a genius too. Now, later I, I went back and I said, you know, you had told me that my style was intoxicant and I wanted to talk to you. And he said, who are you? <laughs> but getting that kind of grade, you know, like an A from Leo Steinberg made me think that, you know, I should write about art. In Philadelphia was a now defunct, early defunct, you know, defunct for years magazine called Art Exchange. And that was run by. Richard Flood, who's now the chief curator at the New Museum. And somebody recommended me, a fellow student. I started writing art reviews for shows in Philly on artists like Jim Dine, David Hockney. And then I ended up landing an interview with, St- with Steve Reich, the, whose music I admired. So I got, st- I got started as an art critic. So I got my degree really slowly. I was working as an electronics technician at University of Pennsylvania's biomedical school for money. And meanwhile, I had a punk band called Ice Nine, and I really wanted to make it in music. I thought, like, I don't know about this art history. I just don't want to continue for a Ph.D. My parents, of course, were, were you know, very flustered by that. And then I started thinking, i got to get to New York. You know, it was the Ramones, Talking Heads, Blondie. I mean, had had started five years before that. So on... New Year's Day of 1980, I moved to New York, and that's where where it all started. I had a good crashing pad again at Aunt Molly's in Brooklyn, and with a long subway ride, 
would commute to Manhattan. This was in early 1980. And uh, my first job was as a uh, surveillance video installer. <laughs> uh, my second job was as a wirer of gadgets. Uh, then I got a job rolling posters for Paste Editions. Pace editions, a job from which I got fired for not fitting in. <laughs> God knows. I met Louise Nevelson there, though. That was interesting. Then a parts lister for Navy engines in a place in upstate New York, which I had no idea what I was doing. And my boss didn't either, so I got away with it. Then finally, I, moved, I had moved to Manhattan from Aunt Molly's. I was living in Union Square West, right across the street from where... Andy Warhol's factory was, and I knew it. And mm -hmm. It was just incredible, you know. One day, I was looking at, and I was really into punk music, and I, you know, I dressed with skinny ties and, you know, the white shirts and really cool suits, and I went to all the discos, like the Mud Club and Danceteria and all those, which were very important in those days because that's where art, art uh, exhibitions started to be hung for a day or two. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I see these two guys, and they're dressed really cool with shades. I'm saying, wow, you know, I could pick up some fashion ideas from those kids. And then after that, one on either side of this guy, it was Andy Warhol. This is really early in 1980 because, look, I lived across the street from the factory. I couldn't believe it. And I saw Andy Warhol, and this just – I was flummoxed. I was just, uh, Wow. You know, this man exists in the flesh. Because I was just very taken with Warhol's work from the first time I saw it. I just, I got it. It doesn't take that much to get the work of Andy Warhol. A lot of people get it, obviously. But he was just a favorite of mine. Later, when I ended up interviewing him, it was probably, again, like meeting Leo Steinberg. It was something that stayed with me. And I've gotten a lot of mileage out of it as well because it keeps on getting republished. So I realized, God, this lot can happen in New York. So after this parts listing job and losing all these other jobs, and I, I couldn't get a job at the bookstore or the frick because PhDs were waiting in line to get jobs. People were very arrogant. They said, why should I hire you? I can get, you know, a person, you know, all but dissertation, you know, to work as a guard in my museum. I don't need you. So I realized that it wasn't really easy to translate an art history degree into a job in New York. So luckily, I, I read the Village Voice religiously for real estate and all kinds of things, apartments, jobs, whatever. And there was a job opening for a co-director of a gallery that was to be located in this guy's condo in Soho. And I took the interview. And it was a pediatric cardiologist named James Shapiro who, because he was friends with Ivan Karp, got this idea that he wanted to open a gallery just because it would be neat to mingle with artists and see pretty girls. And uh, O.K. Harris was kind of looking for other dealers to show some of his B artists, the ones that he couldn't show. Mm -hmm. And so this James Shapiro started smoking cigars like Ivan Karp and everything. So I and, and another person got selected, uh, both art historians, to run this gallery. His neighbors complained that they didn't want a commercial enterprise going on in this gated condo. So he, he rented a place from an artist himself on uh, West Broadway between, uh, between Houston and Prince. And 
Ivan Karp of O.K. Harris named it Semaphore Gallery. It's interesting because you know art is a sign and it's a you know a symbol, a men- method of communication. Great name. And all the artists were already chosen by Ivan Karp, but one of those artists happened to be Robert Colescott. And that's the one I liked because he was just hilarious and irreverent and, you know, black-faced Vermeer and George Washington Carver crossing the Delaware with the, you know, the first, you know, blowjob that I've ever seen in, in the history of art. And maybe until most recently, you know, people like Jeff Koons, probably the only existing one. So taking Colescott as my model, who at that point was 58 years old and had a following among people like Kiki Smith and Joe Lewis and all these people that would later be known as, well, then were known as collab fashion moda uh, art collectives in New York. I kind of picked up on a new figurative thing that was going on between Longo and David Sally and Julian, Julian Schnabel. So six months after I took the job, I curated a show. It's, uh, it's right behind you there. There's an ad for it called The Anxious Figure. And it included some great artists, uh, the oldest of which was Alice Neal. But I had uh, even Ed Paschke in there because I knew Phyllis Kind, Keith Haring, John Ahern, Jed Garrett, Longo, and then a lot of artists you've never heard of, too. And uh, this got a lot of press, and I kind of found what I was doing. At the same time, I was doing interviews for Arts Magazine and articles, which is freelance, and they give you $100, and... I got a I got a lucky break from the editor Mar, uh, Richard Martin, who just was running my articles. So at the same time, I, I was an art dealer earning 150 a week as a co-director, later director. I was publishing articles on, you know, first cover on Robert Longo, first interview with Keith Haring, an article on. Uh, then I did a review of Andy Warhol's Jews of the 20th Century. Finally, I got the Warhol interview. And uh, through Ronald Feldman, his print dealer at the time. But as the, my gallery was getting more and more hip, it was hard to pull off being a writer mm-hmm. and a gallerist because my gallery was advertising in the same magazines that I was doing articles on. So I gave up other artists that were writing at that time, other artists and art historians. My peers at arts were Dan Cameron and, and Peter Howley. The three of us were writing pretty regularly. Dan more regularly. Peter Howley was writing some great articles. But for me, it was a great chance. And then I picked up artists such as Martin Wong, the uh, nefarious Marcus Stabi, Walter Robinson, Duncan Hanna. Duncan Hanna portrait there of Walter Robinson on Van Gogh's Bridge. We kept Cole Scott. And so we became known as a kind of a vanguard, hip gallery specializing in figurative, anxious work. We also showed abstraction. I love abstraction. I always have. I mean, I like Mm -hmm. Bryce Martin as much as I liked figurative art, but it's just that it seemed like that's what was grabbing me at the time, and it was grabbing other people. And simultaneously, the East Village was opening. What was it like for you in this time to be able to have access to these people? Then I don't know. I've I've never interviewed my hero. You know what I mean? So to know that you're in this realm where you you have such admiration for for these individuals. I mean, what what is it like when you're going to sit down with Andy Warhol? And aside from the fact that you're probably nervous as hell, I don't know. It was a life changing experience. Uh, certainly him and and Steve Reich too. You know who's. You know, probably to contemporary music, what Warhol is for contemporary art, I would say. Doing Longo and Sally and Herring and people like that, they were my peers. So 
they were more famous than I, so I was in awe, but I could handle it. With Warhol, I prepared for that interview for a month. Mm -hmm. I formulated questions. I thought about stuff. I read about him, all that I didn't know, which is plenty. I read his, uh, his new book, uh, which was the War Popism, the Warhol 60s. My friend Greg Smith, a painter at the time, he also put in the questions he was interested in, and I used those. So I went in there, and I went up the elevator, and you know the, they looked at me through the security system, and I went in, and he just walked in. He was wearing a, you know, he was wearing a white shirt and jeans, <laughs> and he was really friendly. He was neither space-headed or evasive. Or any of the things you've heard about. Maybe it was because I was so serious. Mm -hmm. And I was 29, I guess, at the time. And I'd obviously done my homework. I asked him serious questions. And I got serious answers. I asked him, you know, what was the effect of Elvis Ellsworth Kelly's abstraction on your work? And he answered me. At the same time, he would get into coy things. And he'd say, yeah, uh, of course I was interested in Elvis' work. I always loved it. And that's why I did the blank canvas thing. And, you know, I should have just done the same painting of a Campbell soup can over and over. He'd segue into something that he'd told other interviewers. Later, mm -hmm. now that, uh, you know, my interview with him is among, I don't know, 60 others in, in the collected interviews of Andy Warhol called uh, I'll Be Your Mirror, I see that from the 60s onward, certain of the questions that he answered for me were answered relatively the same as he'd been answering for years. But then other questions had never been asked, you know, like, well, how'd you select howdy doody, you know, for one of your myths of the 20th century? I was in awe. I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. It was the closest. I mean, if there's one person who I did not meet, who I'd ever have wanted to meet in my lifetime, it would have been John Lennon, who was far more influential on me than, than any of these other people I'm talking mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Meeting with Andy Warhol was about, you know, just a notch below that. And uh, I wasn't that nervous. I mean, I was, I was in awe, I said, but I, I've been talking all my life, and it seemed pretty natural, and he was a very good host. He sat me down in his, in his conference room. Uh, there was a stuffed moose there, and, and he just answered my questions. He didn't say, you know, it was like, gee, oh, really? I mean, there were a lot of those things, too. Or at one point, he even asked me, uh, do you do any sculpturing? Sculpturing, not sculpting. And I said, no, I just kind of do interviewing. You know, I gave up art. He said, do you have any idea for, for any sculpture I could do? And he would ask anybody anything. He right. was, you know, what, what's it cost Andy World to ask somebody for an idea? And then he told me something that's now much more, much more relevant than it might have been then. He said, I'll stick this interview when it comes out, bring it in, and I'll stick it in one of my time capsules. I had no idea. Now you know where these time sure. capsules are. And somewhere, and somewhere, I'm I'm in a time capsule <laughs> with that article. But then he would say stuff like, "You know, you're pretty good. We're looking for people to interview. Uh, talk to Vincent. Come in here. We'll we'll get you interviewing for Interview Magazine." And then I went back, and then I saw him, and he said, "Oh, are you still working for us?" And I said, "Well, no, I'm not working for you. I'd like to work for you. I would have given up my job at, as an art dealer in two seconds to work for Warhol sweeping his floor." But Warhol had a tight contingent of young people that wanted to keep their, you know, their lead, their their proximity. So just because Warhol said, you should work for me, how many people did he say we should work for him that week? Right. Who knows? You know, he'd always say yes. He wouldn't say, you know, you're terrible. Don't ever come back here again. 
But I thought, wow, you know, like I'm going to end up working for Andy Warhol, just like Glenn O'Brien. But and then I came back again, and he said, oh, hi, you're still working for us. I ran into him at, at a disco, like the Tunnel Club. Hi, I, I'm, you're still working for it. No, 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 I, I'd like to work for you. Talk to <laughs> Vincent. Every time I talked to Vincent Fremont, he said that there was nothing available. So I finally gave up and realized that I'd had a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, which I'll never forget, and uh, that was it. Bear was kind enough to find a small clip of this interview, so we'll listen to just a little bit of it right here. So this is Barry interviewing Andy Warhol. Uh, that's what I noticed in the series. It is kind of a, a full circle thing. I just can't believe I did it. In 1960, <laughs> you, you painted uh, Superman, and then you uh, that was shown in Balmett's Teller oh, yeah. one year. And here it is about, what, 21 years later, and you're painting Superman again. I know, I just can't believe it. And also yeah. Mickey Mouse. Did, no, I never you did never, it. Roy uh, Lichtenstein did the uh, Look Mickey, but and you never painted Mickey. And also Oldenburg did Mickey, I think. That's right. He's yeah. done that whole series of things that look like Mickey Mouse. Here. But this time it was complicated. We had to go through getting copyrights and everything like that. <laughs> Back then it was free access. Yeah. Huh? Uh, how do you feel now that the whole idea of pop art is behind uh, Superman, Mickey Mouse, and characters like that. Does that change the meaning at all for you than when you first uh, painted Superman or when? No, I, it just meant that I liked it then and I like it, still like it now. So now we'll jump right back into the interview with Barry. You know, you were talking about putting these shows together, your writing. You became the director of the space that you were talking yeah. about, too. So and I mean, also, Ivan Karp's list, you know, little by little, I got rid of everybody except for Cole Scott because they were basically just decorative you know, Trump Loy, uh, you know, photorealist, you know, it's things that I had very little interest in at that time, although I admire photorealism, of course. So little by little, my, my pediatric cardiologist, who basically ran the place, oh, there were tax write-offs. So basically, he either paid tax on his 200000 a year that he made as a doctor, or he had a gallery. What would you choose? Right. So he got to hang around with glamorous people all the time. So little by little, all the artists in the gallery were ones that I'd chosen. The co-director left, and now I had a place that was getting reviews in, in Art in America, Art Forum, New York Times. The Metropolitan bought a painting by Duncan Hanna. They bought a painting by, by Martin Wong. The Whitney bought a painting by Robert Colescott. And it's not like I was still making 165 a week, but I was having a lot of fun. It got to the point where I think my last year in New York, which was 87, I think I earned $50,000 uh, based on just commissions from sales. By that time, I was what was in, in effect, I was a partner, which God knows what that meant mm -hmm. because we never really made any money. So I was showing some artists who weren't doing well and some artists with a name. The big collectors, the big tier collectors weren't banging our doors down. It was an underground kind of following. But to this day, Martin Wong and... And Robert Colescott still could be more famous than they are. But we were latched into a culture of young downtown artists that included Walter Robinson and Kiki Smith and people like that. In group shows, I was showing Keith Haring. When we opened our gallery in the East Village in 1984 called Semaphore East, which was a, a nod to the Fillmore East, this was on 10th and B, Avenue B, which was a pretty slummy place at that time, I opened with a show in which Keith Haring said, paint your gallery black. And he came in and he just did chalk on a wall with backlit photos done by Tseng Guangqi, the Chinese photographer who had documented everything he'd ever done on the subway. We opened this gallery with mural by Keith Haring, 
who, because he just opened the pop shop, was out of favor. I didn't get a review for that show. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> but we were able to have two galleries then, and I thought, yeah, this is good. i got to be entrepreneurial here. My father <laughs> never expanded Blinderman's drugs. i got to expand some for a gallery. <laughs> so I gave this, you know, the owner like $10,000 that I, my mom gave me to be a partner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's my investment in it. So I was full partner now in this gallery. And so we had two openings a, a month, you know, one in Semaphore East, one at, in Soho. And it was a great scene. I mean, it was all dancing and, and clubs and God, I, I, it was just really intense. I'd, I remember I'd pick up a half a pint of liquor and, and just drink it on my way to some opening. Uh, I was never an alcoholic, but I just, you know, kind of fit the mm-hmm. you know, just loose and fancy free. I went to Civilian Warfare Gallery that showed David Vonarovich, and a little high on this whiskey, I bought that painting called Fuck You, Faggot Fucker, one of his finest paintings in existence, for $3,000, which at the time was like spending a million dollars. If I hadn't been a little oiled, I would have never bought it. But so I was a big shot. You know, I was earning now big bucks, like 300 a week. So, <laughs> jeez, 400 a week, maybe. So I was starting to really, you know, be in the cash. I, I, I wish they would break up more uh, hard alcohol at, you know, events. You know, oh, we were at, loose, at my gallery at the time. We were serving uh, VSOP cognac and, and <laughs> wine and, all, you know, all kinds of stuff. It was something. So what drew you out of that? Economics. Uh, I got married to a, a you know beautiful, charismatic artist named uh, Christina Nordholm. I was just head over heels. Uh, my son Gabriel was born. Hallie and Coons and Meyer Weissman and Ashley Bickerton had a show at Sonnebin Gallery. And that brought in Neo Geo, a term that was as much fa- coined by collectors as anybody else. And people like Martin Wong and Cole Scott and this more gritty stuff fell more by the wayside. We just closed Semaphore East and my West Broadway second floor thing to open this big gallery on Green Street, across the street from Leo Castelli. Now it's going to be a real big shot. You know, Corinthian columns, tin ceilings, beautiful. And staked it all. And I thought, this is going to work. Well, first show was Martin Wong. And he'd done these ridiculously big paintings, like 10 foot by 18 feet. And for the first time, I didn't sell Martin Wong's show. And that was kind of the beginning of the death knell. This wasn't what was selling. I'd need to have sold half the paintings. The rent was funny. It was $7,000, which now (laughs) you couldn't get a telephone booth for that. But at the time, (laughs) that was a lot of money. Right. The last year at Semaphore, I took in $400,000 in sales you know, 50 of which I was able to pay myself. Yet, it wasn't enough to stay open. Meanwhile, the uh, subchapter S tax loop thing got eliminated by the government. James Shapiro could not lose money in a gallery anymore. He had to just lose money on some other thing or just pay taxes. So I kind of read the writing on the wall. This was not going to happen. And meanwhile, I was living in in a big loft that I couldn't afford on Rivington Street. I was getting mugged on my way to work, you know, dressing in my fancy designer suits. And my son was was six months old at that time. So I went to Boston, took interviews at uh, College Art Association, thinking, hey, man, if I can be a director of a 
of a gallery in Soho, man, people would just love me to be a director of their museum. I took 14 interviews or more maybe. I got interviews with uh, the Contemporary Arts Museum in uh, New Orleans, uh, Heron School of Art, Indianapolis, Cranard as curator. And believe it or not, at 35000 including teaching, ISU was my best offer that I was able to get. And I wanted to move to normal Illinois like I wanted to have my leg cut off. <laughs> you know, think of it. I'm from Pennsylvania. That's called Penn's Woods. It's hilly and beautiful and water. And and I flew in for this interview in Peoria <laughs> because that was the cheapest flight they could find in a propeller plane. That was like, <laughs> it sounded like a lawnmower. There were like 20 people on the plane. And Dee Kilgo, who was a professor in photography, drove me down here from Peoria. And I was just saying, please don't let me pick this. <laughs> Fuck up this interview. You know, like, I, I just, what is this place? And, uh, but I, you know, I got, I did the interview and the head of the art department was, the gallery's part of the art department. It was Ed Ford. And he was a real hip guy who was buying New York art. And he saw me as an opportunity to New York eyes what was going on here, which was nothing. They had been taking traveling shows from other places and, you know, there was mm -hmm. nothing. Nice collection, but nothing was happening. And he wanted something to happen. And I was his ticket and I liked him. I saw that real estate was cheap. I ended up buying a house for $48,000. It was a 13-room house that needed work on Grove Street. Moved out my wife, my child, my bunny, and my poodle. There was supposed to be a show of of Crystal, works in Crystal, and I canceled that show. Mm -hmm. And I opened with a show called The Anxious, Anxious Objects. It was D Gene Dunning, Tony Tassett, uh, Hirsch Perlman, and uh, a couple other artists. And I didn't know from nothing about Chicago, but I realized that there was a, a wave of conceptual artists in Chicago. So I had all these ideas for who I'd show from New York and did show Donald Batchelor, Mark Inners, David Wonorovich, Keith Haring, uh, Kiki Smith in quick succession. But at the same time, I realized that Chicago was like not a nowhere. There were things happening. I liked Roger Brown and Ed Paschke and the Harry Who, but a New Yorker who knows nothing thinks that's all that's happening. Mm -hmm. I'd only been to Chicago or the Midwest twice when I moved out here. So I saw, wow, there's these younger artists that are really good. This is great. And I ended up showing later Tony Tassett, Gene Dunning, Michelle Grabner. I thought, this is great. They're right here in my front door. Was that also something that was part of the appeal too? Because I mean, you could... I could do whatever like could... I wanted. Right, This right. is a great place. Look at it. I still think this is a great space. Sure, sure. It doesn't have the tin ceilings and the Corinthian columns in New York. And Robert Pincus Witten and Irving Sandler and, and Robert Rosenblum don't walk in to say hi to me. In New York, it was glamour. I mean, I sold work to Mick Jagger, Matt Dillon, Mike Douglas, and yeah, it was pretty cool. Here, it's it's much more insular, which mm -hmm. is why, to change the subject a little bit, it was why I started a publications program. I realized that I couldn't just stay here. I, I'd left New York. People said that I was a loser and that that I was going to die out here. And it was uh, my Jewish friend said it's a Goyesha wilderness and. Like, how could I possibly survive out here? I proved them wrong. I'm sure a lot of them would love to be out here now who don't have jobs. But I started a publications program. Every show, main show, had a catalog. These are Some of these are rare books now. Some of them are still in circulation, and everybody knows we publish. So, I mean, we're not the Renaissance Society, but 
you know, we have a reputation. Well, it's again, it just seems like a really great place to be because you, you don't have to worry about that, that $7,000. I didn't month, have you know? to sell anything. I could just show whatever I wanted. All the artists that wouldn't show with me in New York were glad to show out here because they would get a book and, and it was hip. And so I was able to just take my pick and show whoever I wanted. Trucking was cheap back then. Everything was cheap. I got NEA grants in a row, like, I don't know, 10 in a row, because they're probably thinking, wow, this farmer out here, this is pretty cool, you know, <laughs> right. for, for like, you know, this guy with a corncob pipe. I mean, hey, let's give him money. Or maybe they knew who I was. I don't know. But, like, the government was, was throwing money at me, 10000 here, and the LNA Arts Council was giving us twenty a year, 20000 a year. Also, our catalogs began selling. We, we sold, I don't know, $80,000 worth of the Keith Haring book. Now, of course, that's Keith Haring. It's still in circulation. How did the how did just being here impact you in terms of what you're interested in? People I mean, let me left me alone. They let me do exactly what I wanted. I had all the the space. I didn't have to worry about somebody holding a gun up to me or a knife. I had a backyard. I could walk my dog in peace, raise my son in peace. Uh, I could work all day and all night because his mom, an artist, and I traded you know studio time for. Work time, I lived here, basically. I lived mm -hmm. at the gallery. I had a cot. And uh, when I wasn't taking care of my son, I was here. I was working, you know, like 60, 70 hours a week to make this stuff happen. It was me and a guard, mm -hmm. a Nazi guard. You know, she just basically, you know, would, like, try to get people not to come here. Then later, Lori Dahlberg, who's now the head of the art history program at Bard, was my uh, curator. And then Peter Spooner. Uh, I found people in the school who mm -hmm. were excellent. It's mm -hmm. a great opportunity. There's a lot of smart people that come through or you have to pick them. Sure. And then so I started finding curators. Then I got a, a budget boost. The gallery started uh, becoming a part of the College of Fine Arts instead of the art departments. We had total autonomy. Meanwhile, I was enjoying teaching. I enjoyed mentoring. I mean, I'm a college kid when it comes down to it. I was 35 when I came here. It had only been eight years since I'd left grad school. So I was glad to get back into a teaching situation. I love being surrounded by young people. And I was young. I was the youngest person here. I was the only person that had kids that I'm aware of, except for John Walker and later Peter Bushel. Gabriel, my son, grew up in these you know art studios and, and around here and in the gallery. And it was you know Ken Holder and Ron and, and Harold and, and Dave Tell and you know, Jim Butler, Richard Finch, all these people. Finch is my age. But I was the youngest around. I was like, you know, JFK and the kids <laughs> and from New York. And everybody said, oh, this is our curator. He's from New York. And, <laughs> you know, that, that worked for about 16 years. It was about, I was here about my, maybe my 17th, 18th year when people started saying, still said, oh, you know, you used to run a gallery in New York. Like, that's what my reputation was. Did a Vonerovich show, ran a gallery in New York. Then I guess now I'm uh, indoctrinated as a Midwesterner. I mean, I've lived here almost half of my life. This place was great. It was an opportunity. There were clear-headed, exuberant students that I could mold and work with, and later they could leave and go on to you know great jobs. I liked the faculty. I got to hire some of the faculty, like Melissa Resky. Scott Rankin was one of my hires, Jim Lutz. And uh, again, people liked what I was doing because it was a university. They backed me up. So I could get away with whatever I wanted to get away with. And as long as it was, you know, it was good for the 
university, I had, you know, I, I had and pretty much have total freedom. And believe me, that's worth it. I couldn't have done this in New York. I could barely write a press release in New York. I didn't have the time. Writing? I published now God knows how many books, 50, you know, catalogs, self-published. And then I've written for countless other people's catalogs. Would I have done that in New York? No. Would I have made money if I'd stayed there? Probably. I would imagine. But uh, I don't think about it. I thought that, you know, it was probably, uh, do I believe in destiny? Who knows, you know? I guess it was my destiny to come here. What is it about these experiences that you like to get people, especially young people, through these doors? What is it about art or visual art or just art in general that that you think unlocks something? It hits you here, somewhere between your brain and your genitals. You know, it good art, you know, hits you in the stomach just the way good music does. And for me, people say, well, you're pretty eclectic, you know, because people can't figure me out because... On the one hand, I've shown Philip Taff. On the other hand, I've shown Michelle Grabner. And on the other hand, I've shown Keith Haring and David Vonerovich. What do these things have in common? Or Sieben Versteeg or, you know, any number of video artists and conceptual artists. What's in common is is just somewhere there's a resonance. Everybody's got their own meter. And you try to stay true to this art-o-meter, artometer, and... I don't think like, well, does this conform to the guidelines that I've established for curating? No. I I know it like I knew the Beatles were geniuses when I heard I want to hold your hand. I know it when I hear it. I know it when I see it. I keep my eyes open. I keep my ears open. And I surround myself with people who do the same. Things have changed as I as I age. And I'll go into that because I think that's important too. But for me, art has to be smart. And unless it's a sound piece, it has to be visually entrancing, or I'm not interested in it, Mm -hmm. at least to me. I think that, again, other than sound pieces and pieces that only exist in your head, uh, I mean, the Spiral Jetty looks good, doesn't it? If it didn't look good, it wouldn't be good. (laughs) And so for me, the whole point of visual art is for something to hit you like you've been run over by a truck. It's got to have that grab. I mean, you might say, well, I don't know, that Wonorovich doesn't really grab me. But, you know, there are things about it that just floored me at the time. And I can tell you a story about how everything that I have in here floored me, whether it's a student, Rachel Smith, or another student, Jason Sherman, or whether it's, you know, Jane Dixon or, you know, some of the artists that are Donald Batchelor. It You have to just be true to your intuition. And some people will say, well, that's not very intellectual. How could you teach a course on curating based on that? I know it when I see it. I don't know. Try me. I, I'll i stand on my record. I don't consider myself the, the greatest curator that ever came down or the greatest director. But, you know, I'm happy with what I've done. I think I could do better, and I, I constantly strive to do better. When I see something, for example, Bill Conger put Jason... Lazarus in a group show he did called uh, Unfiction. Mm-hmm. And I saw the four works in it. And Bill Conger is a smart guy. That's why he was curating here for, for 10 years. And Bill was a former student of mine. And so another case of, of being able to be involved in someone's development. Certainly, Bill has learned a lot from a lot of people, but he spent some formative years here. 
So he puts Jason Lazarus in the show with also, you know, other great artists. And I see this is a one person show. I mean, like, give me a break. I mean, if I ever saw a one person show, this is a one person show. So thank you, Bill. <laughs> and uh, later, Bill was leaving to become a full time artist. And I get this shy call from Jason. Uh, my name's Jason Lazarus. And, you know, I had a I was in a group show here. Jason. Hi. Yeah, I know who you are. Of course we met, you know. And I was wondering if if Bill was interested in doing a show with me, if if I could have a show, if I could have the show here, he'd come down for the opening. I said, well, we're already planning the show. Sorry, I haven't called you yet. But, yes, I mean, we're doing the show. And uh, Jason was on people's radar before we showed him. He had a, he had a three-person show at the Art Institute. It was, we didn't discover Jason Lazarus. But I knew that if I didn't do that show – that somebody else would. And after our book came out, three more came out. And it's not like I'm a hunter and I have to be the first, but you didn't have to be a genius to see that Jason Lazarus' work was amazing. So I'd like to be in the position to be someone who can further that cause, as we did with Michelle Grabner, as we did with Stephen Versteeg, as we did for Tony Tassett, another example, different. Tony Tassett. Fantastic artist. I mean, it's it's beyond debate, I'm sure. And he's in the biennial, finally. So he was kind of a great artist who I felt needed to be recognized more. So this was a different case from Jason. Jason's, it's a new artist that is relatively unexposed, but still on the radar. With Tony, it was someone who I knew had paid his dues and done a lot of work, but needed more recognition. So that was that case. Same with Kenny Scharf, who was kind of in a hiatus when when we decided to show him. Keith Haring wasn't exactly hot when we decided to show him. These are two different, not everything that we do, but two different examples. And, of course, we have the other work that, that our other curators do, and Kendra's a, a great curator in her own right. So all this is satisfying. I know that we're a small part in the cog of the wheel of the art enterprise. What do you see coming out now and obviously you know you, you i'm sure there's some students that you see things in and, and maybe some that you don't what's changed in, in that aspect of it you know one of the things that i like about doing these interviews hopefully is that people can kind of get you know a better understanding you know of, of not only like how people work but maybe what might work for them or what might be interesting for them so i mean especially for someone that might be you know listening to this i mean what do you what do you see about artists that's exciting to you now yeah, to throw out another big question, I mean, what, what, what would you want them to do? I mean, in, in terms of just someone that's just going to be starting or, you know, graduating now, what do you want to see them be doing? But I'll start with, with what I think students should do. And it's clear that people say, okay, now I want to show my images to a gallery in Chicago. I said, forget it. Do you deserve that? What have you done to deserve that? What, have, what, what dues have you paid? What, you know, make work. I say, start a fire in your studio and if it's good enough, people will smell the smoke and come around. Get in group shows, just like the 80s artists did. Did Keith Haring show his slides? No, he did these, you know, five years of subway drawings on the subway until people were clamoring and pounding at his door. Uh, get to know curators. Get to know people like you. And, uh, and find your way into group shows in Chicago so that... Maybe you'll get in a booth in the art fair, and then maybe somebody like me will see you in that booth, write down your name, or Kendra will write down your name, and then pretty soon you're showing. It's got to happen of your own volition. You can't just go around and 
you know, know somebody and say, I mean, so many people say, Barry, I'm looking for a gallery in New York. Can you help me? I don't even, I mean, the gallerists that I knew are, are out of business or dead or, or I don't have any influence in New York. I can't get anybody. That was going to be my third question coming. I have very little (laughs) influence now in the New York art world. Uh, A lot of the people that I knew and the dealers know us from giving us the rights to reproduce artists' images. What I tell artists is just work your ass off and don't think about the results. Don't think about the reward. You know, the biggest reward you're ever going to get probably is a show that might sell three pieces. If you're 1.1% of the artists who ever end up making a living, like Damien Hirst, you know, there's the same 99% rule is the same in our country's economic structure as it is in the art world, only it's worse. Probably a half a percentage of artists at the most are making a living without teaching or without day jobs doing art. The rest of them are making around three or 4000 a year. And you know what? It hasn't changed in the... I've been involved in this business now for 27, 8, 35 years, 40 if you include my writing. In the 40 years I've been involved actively in art, people still make the same amount of money that they were making then. So it's pretty sad. Uh, you obviously have to do it for the love. What else has changed? Things are more professional now. There's Everybody's got an MA, yourself included, MFA. You know, people are lining up, you know, to get their MFA stamp and seal. Artists are much more professional now. When I was in New York, I mean, you had Basquiat. Most of the artists I know barely finished art school, let alone having an MFA. I, who did I show at an MFA? Nobody. Mm-hmm. Cole Scott, I guess. Uh, it, it wasn't about that. Now you have this whole professional school of 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 new artists being, you know, pumped out by any number of art schools, including ours. What are you excited about now? Things have shifted. Oh, yeah, we never got to technology, too. As far as technology is concerned, when I came here, my revelation was getting a Mac Plus with a, you know, a two-megabyte hard drive or something, (laughs) and that I could word process and cut and paste. That, to me, opened the door for, for desktop publishing. There were a few fonts, maybe, and we had to take our word processing and bring it to printing where they would have a Linux machine and where they could get fonts. But it enabled us to start our publishing program in 1987. Nobody in New York even had a computer in the galleries. They had index cards. Very few galleries did. And you had to buy expensive programs from people for $20,000 just to have your inventory done. It was like any field in the beginning where only specialists can deal with it. And then all of a sudden, everybody can do it. So when I got here, and then all of a sudden when there was Photoshop, and you're like, what? You can alter things? Should I be able to alter this thing? That's not true. The internet, email. I've kept all my emails from 95 forward. And because you know what? I used to keep a diary and a journal, and every my thoughts are in those emails. And someday I'm going to have to look through them and and separate the hello music, you know, emails from from the ones of substance. Having the iPhone, having shows based on selfies, having video to the state where people can make really damn good videos with an iPhone 5S. All this is opening up the same kind of issue that happened when photography became widespread, when it's like, well, if everybody is a photographer and that you take photographs, I take photographs, and Aunt Sally takes photographs, then what? what's the difference between 
photography that's art and photography that isn't art. Think of Zapruder, you know, taking eight millimeter film of Kennedy's car parade as he went through Dallas and got shot. Now, there's that one film that I think he sold for a couple thousand dollars of the whole thing. Now, Obama's coming through town. How many tapes will there be of that? How many videos are oh there gosh. of some high school play that your kid's in? It's, it's it, insane. I mean, it, I, there's I, so much media, and where the fuck does it go? I don't know if anybody watches it. I, 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 I get, and again, as someone that doesn't doesn't have this this wonderful technology uh, in, in their pocket, I, I'm amazed going to see concerts and see people taping like entire long segments and and not being present. I guess you know in terms of you know that performance or, or you mean just taping it, but not. yeah, yeah. I mean just just to, just well, so they have it to kind of like remember. But people, right? People know. in museums now, if you they find if you take pictures of stuff. You remember the stuff that you're looking at much less than if you just looked at it. Right. But these days, when you go to a museum, the whole point is to take pictures. It used to be to go to the gift shop. Now it's to take pictures. Anyway, technology has come a long way. It has and it hasn't. And uh, there are very few shows we have that don't have a video element at least for whatever, you know, that's not the most advanced mm-hmm. thing. I mean, video has been around since the 60s. But twenty when I when I started out here... 27 years ago, when you went to the MCA, there weren't video rooms dedicated to video artists. Now, you couldn't possibly go to the MCA without running into one video room. It's not going to happen. So just the idea that that this dematerialized format is one of the main formats that artists are seeking is interesting. And it's also good because we all have a connection with, with movies. And then... You know, it, it becomes very interesting to me as to what differentiates a commercial film from an artist video. How do the two relate? How are they different? Uh, how does one affect the other? Because they do. Art videos affect film, and film affects art video. And the, the films that you can get on Netflix now, some of them are done by artists. For example, Sam Taylor Wood did a, a movie she got backing called Nowhere Boy, which is about... John Lennon and his Aunt Mim and his, and his mother, Julia. Or you have an artist like Julian Schnabel making a fortune doing a movie like Basquiat. So here's artists who sell to film people. Then the film people put their money in the artists to make films in Hollywood. It's crazy. And I'm fascinated by technology. I just love the fact that technology is so immersive. And I love sound. So the pieces that we have back there... Just fine-tuning the sound is fascinating to me. Like, I want people to have aesthetic experiences. I want people to, you know, gasp as much as they possibly can. I, I know that, that in the years I've been here, I know just from people telling me that some people, some visiting artists that we brought in, some print they saw, some show they saw, they remember it. And it's had an effect on their lives. And that makes me really happy. It, that's all you need. You know, I... I don't. I've never won a curatorial award. I've never been nominated for a curatorial award, nor have I been recognized as a curator or a director. I'm not saying this because I'm mad that I haven't, but the payoff has been huge. Is there one thing I'd rather have been? Yeah, I'd rather have been uh, a pop star of the ilk of Elvis Costello, who who 
I admire as much as I used to admire Andy Warhol, who gets to do what he wants, is an amazing musician, and collaborates with whom, whomever he wants, and has fans just, you know, gasping at, 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 the, at the quality of his music and the persona that he has. That would have been the kind of audience that, that Barry Blinderman would have desired for a feeling of being loved. I settled and fell into a world where there's a smaller group of, of fans and appreciators and protégés and people that I can influence. And it saved me a lot of trouble. You know, I don't have to tour and stay in hotels and, and you know, bash up hotels. And, you know, I didn't have to worry about being tempted by drugs and things like that. So as far as fulfillment is concerned, uh, that's, that's it. And I get to do that on the side anyway. I'm making music. I'm recording music. I play live music. So I'm getting to do my hobby anyway. So I really can't complain. This job allows me to engage in all kinds of creative enterprise. If I had to do the whole thing over, I don't know whether I would change it. You know, I don't know whether I'd say, well, I should get a PhD with Leo Steinberg. You know, then I would have been teaching art history at a college. Would that have made things better? I, yeah, I kind of doubt it. I, I like the way things have turned out. Uh, time passes quickly. How old are you? 30 what? Four. I'm, you know, a little less than double your age. You know, I'm 61. When someday somebody's going to be interviewing you about your famous podcast and your famous paintings or whatever, you'll be on my side and you'll be my age and you'll just think like, wow, this really went fast. Well, hopefully I have uh, uh, a lot of studio assistants because I, I have a feeling that the uh, eclectic stuff that you have compiled will be like insane for me because I collect everything too. It is but, important. I, I tell people too, just just keep records because uh, if I hadn't kept all this stuff and these diaries and every photograph I ever took, some of the stories that I have to tell would be far more faded. Well, once again, thanks so much for taking uh, these hours to let me hassle you. Oh, you haven't hassled me at all. It's been a pleasure. Who would not enjoy talking about themselves for an hour and a half? Thanks once again to Barry for joining us. And please check out Illinois State University Galleries. Again, I'm going to post a link to their bookstore where you can find many of the catalogs that we discussed and again, there's tons of them. You can find Tony Tassett's Better Me. You can find the Post-Hypnotic Catalog or Michelle Grabner's Catalog. Please go check them out. You'll also want to check out the SoundCloud link for more of Barry's music. And at the end, we'll play Buddha with a special guest, Skylar Mail from 2004. So stay tuned for that. As the host of Studio Break, I don't always get to share my work, but you can check it out at davidlinaway.com. I'm very excited about an exhibition, a two-person show coming up with John Reddington at the Cochrane Gallery in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, that runs March 28th through April 27th. The exhibition is called So Ill Perspective, Reimagined Landscapes, and it's going to feature 22 new works from the two of us, all exploring landscape. We're going to do a whole podcast about it and kind of continue to explore this as we hit the road for the exhibition, which opens up in a couple of weeks, so stay tuned for that. Just a reminder that Bill Conger's The Sadded Peel runs through March 29th at 65 grand, and we had him on recently to talk about that exhibition. He's been a frequent guest. Please go check it out. It's a great show and a great interview if you haven't heard it. 
Another show that you want to check out at Joliet Junior College in Illinois is Clay Metal Fiber, and those are with the artists Tim Kowalczyk, Joseph Jenner, and Lauren Turk. We're very excited to have them on this coming week to talk about their exhibition and explore some ideas of the materials that they're working through. Our last exhibition announcement, Mel Cook's Between the Void opens at the Peoria Art Guild Saturday, March 22nd. It runs through April 23rd, and there's a lot of new works for the exhibition. We talk at great length, of course, in podcast format, so look for that shortly as well. I want to remind you that Mel Cook was one of our 2013 competition winners. She received this solo show as a part of this competition. And again, we do this every year, May 31st. Nine artists will be featured on Studio Break from three different categories, BFA, MFA, and professional. So again, three artists, three categories. Our juror this year is Richard Holland from Bad at Sports, who many of you might know. They've been doing a fantastic podcast there for years, and we're very excited to have him select the artist this year to be featured on Studio Break. So make sure to like and follow our Facebook page if you don't want to miss it. And also follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. You can follow our Tumblr account. That's studio-break.tumblr. And our last little reminder, if you like this podcast or you heard this and now you're checking out a bunch of different episodes and you've heard a couple of them, please leave us some positive feedback in the iTunes store. Again, it just helps tons of other people out there in the world that love listening to podcasts while they're making artwork or taking their daily commute to find new podcasts to listen to. So if you could leave us some comments in the iTunes store, it generally just helps out with visibility and gets us more listeners and people checking out other artists and listening to their stories, their experiences. Though we do our best, we always love it when you share and use those share buttons to help get the word out. Thank you once again for listening. We hope that you enjoyed the podcast and that you enjoyed the song coming up by Barry Blenderman called Buddha. It's featuring Skylar Mail, who also does the music for the website, so kind of fitting. Once again, thank you to Barry and Skylar, and we'll talk to you real soon.
Some say you seek those that are like you. Others say that you become them. It's your fearlessness I admire. Your sureness, your clarity. Eleven years ago, you were a foundling, crying and panting at my door, standing steadfast like a sentinel. I don't know what I'd do without you. 